HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coral Lee. Author Nancy Hachizu is the authority on all things Japanese. Her bibliography may seem backwards to most, a kind of telescoping outwards. Her first book was specifically focused on farm food, her second on various Japanese methods of preservation, and most recently, most audaciously, her book is titled Japan the Cookbook. Nancy is proof in the pudding that another once foreign culture, cuisine, food, and mannerisms, etc. can be studied, learned, embodied, sensitively, accurately, and holistically. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nancy. So let's start. Hi. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so let's start um, with how I typically start my interviews, which is just simply, where are you from? Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Can you hear me? Yep. Great. Okay, so um, we're just going to start the interview by, with just um, some background. Where are you from? Um, I grew up in the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, moved away from there and then went back there for college. And then in 1988, I made my way to Japan, thinking I was going to stay for a year to uh, learn some Japanese and then go to graduate school and get a JD and a master's in uh, East Asian studies as in uh, Japanese language uh, because I was in love with sushi and I was going to add Japanese as my next language. <laughs> and I stayed for 30 years and I'm still there. Mm-hmm. What initially sparked that interest in Japanese cuisine? You said sushi? Yeah, that's uh, the second I'm turning off the dishwasher where I am because it's very loud. Um, <laughs> okay. The, yeah, in the early 80s, I was taken to a... I, I had eaten, you know, some sort of casual sushi, uh, takeout sushi once, and then one of my friend's grandmas made um, country sushi roll for me, and... Um, I, the taste, um, it was more like vegetable style, um, 
and I, I like uh, salads or, or steak tartare or raw foods, and um, the, the way the tastes were so clean, and then I also was very fond of um, that uh, soup we call arajiru. It's um, the, the clear fish broth that is sort of ubiquitous um, beyond the miso soup paradigm, and um, those foods are already something things that I really liked, and then I went to a real sushi bar in San Francisco with a food critic friend, and I just was, I fell in love, like, the, the style of eating two-by-two two pieces, and, and it, I just, you know, um, by then I was working in the front of a house in restaurants and bars, and I <clears throat> I really liked the fact that of, of, of talking to the, the sushi master as we ate and that whole relationship, and, and I just became a regular in that, um, and I followed that sushi Master to his the place he opened, and then uh, I went back to Palo Alto for about a year, and I um, got to be friends with another sushi master, and just um, a lot more than you wanted to know, but, <laughs> but it was just, um, and it was not just sushi, is not just, I mean, especially, I, you know, real sushi. I mean, as in the sushi, the sushi um, bar sushi, what we call sushi ya, and this this is way different from the sushi in the round or sushi from the supermarket or sushi make at home. It's something that people study or, or train for seven years for. I mean, it's, it's a really a and and the it's it's not just the food; it's the whole atmosphere. And in Japan, it's actually I mean, way more elevated than 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 many places here. Um, and I won't even you know get into that right this minute. But um, I mean, it's about ceramics, etc. But it, the the feeling of the place really attracted to me really attracted me, um, even though it was busy, but it's just there's something that really captured me, and that's another kind of calling point for Japan, and, and um, so I went. Mm-hmm. And so you said um, your friend, your friend's mom first served you, what you said was farm country sushi, if I remember correctly. Grandma. Yeah, and grandma, so, friend oh, from grandma. college, mm-hmm. um, lived in Minneapolis, and um, his parents were Japanese-American, and, and uh, and then his grandma was um, had come from Japan, and um, she made it. She had heard that I really liked it, uh, that kind of sushi, and then she made it, and then um, they and brought it over to mm-hmm. the house. And how did that sushi differ than what you might find in the sushi bar? Oh my bar? God! You're talking about look. We're talking about 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. 40. <laughs> so what, what kind so of was I, it? I, I have. Absolutely. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I can recall the table we were sitting at and mm-hmm. that sort of thing, and I can recall. Also, when you first go, or when you face, first taste Japanese food, especially like in America, um, you don't have any kind of a palate to to judge it. Mm-hmm. I'm just telling you that. And when I first went to Japan, I thought everything tasted good. And now I know a lot of people go and say there's no bad food in Japan. That's just absolutely not the case. There's Plenty of mediocre food and plenty of MSG in the food and plenty of very, very, very mediocre vegetables. Um, the fish is amazing. But, um, I mean, there's also good food, no, of course. And if you compare it maybe to another big city in America, I don't really, I mean, I go to New York occasionally. I know San Francisco pretty well, but I actually don't spend that much time there now. Um, I don't spend time in big cities so much, but maybe if you compare... Uh, comparatively, it's better food in Japan, but um, there's plenty of bad food too. But sushi-wise, 
And what really struck me is I, I, I luckily, by just, I tried to find the best sushi uh, place in my town or in my city I was living when I was first there in Japan. I bumbled into somebody's house, and I was really mysterious. These, every place had a curtain, you know, and a lot of people live in their shop or live above their shop and um, shop or restaurant. And um, then I found this, like, eatery, and they had, you know, they didn't have sushi, but they had big pieces of hamachi. And it was after two or three times, I was like done with that place. Um, and then I did find the best sushi shop in the in the city um, because there was a tank of fish outside, and it really had only like ten spots at the counter. And uh, I was very surprised to see a foreigner. Mm-hmm. Um, but and he was also surprised that I asked for something like. Um, um, there's lots of tricking up of the sushi in, in America. I don't really have any idea of what it's like now, so I, I'm only talking about when I was eating it in the 80s, yeah. And towards the end of the, eight, the late 80s, there's a lot of, like, this little dish has this and this and this in it, and this sushi has some lime and, and, and blah, 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 and this one, you know, has um, uh, the ikura always has quail egg because, of course, the ikura is not very good, the <laughs> salmon bro. And the quail egg mitigates the stickiness, you know. But when I asked for a quail yolk on the um, the ikura, the salmon roe, he just looked at me in great surprise. <laughs> and, and and that reaction, I think I probably asked twice for a different, like, thinking thing. And I noticed the reaction and never asked again mm-hmm. because I realized this is not a thing. And so really it's about the the rice how they cook the rice, how they season the rice, and then how they treat the fish. And it's not just, we're not talking about raw fish left on the rice. There's some, I mean, if anybody's, I'm sure many people have seen Birojin's sushi, you know, the, the rice is, I mean, the, the fish is um, rested or, or even aged perhaps, and then it could be kelp wicked or, or vinegar wicked. I mean, vinegar treated, you know, there's all sorts of things that are happening. Um, so, but it's all about that simplicity, rice and mm. fish. And nowadays, because sushi is so expensive, um, you know, even in Japan, people are serving one by one because to, to like, you get more variety um, and less price. But I, I can't do the one by one thing. Yeah, so you I don't go to that. sushi very much, actually. <laughs> you, you mentioned being really attracted to that two by two or just, yeah, two by two eating process. So what does yeah. that do for you compared well, to, you know, just the one by one piece? Oh, well, one by one. I mean, I was more referring to a big plate of food as opposed to okay. the two-by-two thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the one-by-one one is just forget about that. It's like it's like leaving – it leaves you wanting more. <laughs> and then I think you're going to actually eat more. <laughs> but, you know, you just – and sometimes there was some fish that I would have um, one more time to have. Um, but um, uh, it's more the idea of eating little by little, you know, mm-hmm. um, just – Two little bites, and then you feel really good. And and also not getting a whole whole board full of sushi or a whole plate full of sushi. I hate that because it's it should be eaten right away. Mm-hmm. You don't like let it pile up or. And I think that's probably another reason. You know, people maybe one by one makes it, the pacing is easier for people. Um, but it's a self-paced thing for the way I order. I don't ever order. You know. Um, uh, the omakase thing, I guess it's a big, big, big thing in America now. But um, sure, I mean, if I know the guy, but I, but in that case, we signal when I'm ready for the next thing, things like that, and mm-hmm. I, it's a discussion. 
I mean, I have been to Judo-san's place um, just recently. The last time was probably the last time, and that was the first time I paid because um, I have friends with his editor and a very, very lucky situation and some private audiences. And so that's a whole different kind of thing, and that is one by one. It's kind of a symphony of sushi, and it's also all involved in Judo-san as a, who he is as a master in his life and what he's done. And, and so it's like a it's sort of a different kind of sushi from, you know, an, an upscale sushi shop. That, and I haven't been to any of the, the ones in Tokyo because I, I still have my guy in, in the town. It's, it's like 45 minutes away. I just don't go as much. It increasingly got more and more expensive. The first time was $50. And then when I brought my sister with me, it was $80. And then when my husband started coming, my husband-to-be came with me, it was like $100. And then when we got married and he moved to a new shop, very, very, very beautiful, fancy place, it became 150 mm-hmm. And then we gained less and less, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when we had kids and just forget about it because those kids eat a lot. <laughs> so, but then I started going back because just recently, because I, and I take the train because I don't want to not have something to drink with it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So you you grew up in Palo Alto, went to school there, and then um, are now in Japan. And so how with these kind of two, but I'm guessing now you have multiple um, kind of home bases, how would you describe your culinary identity? Uh, well, actually, I was born in Palo Alto. I grew up in Atherton, and my um, mom was a sunset cook. And so the food we ate every day was from, and, and she had a whole cupboard full of Spice Islands, dried spices, shopped at the co-op. And so I was, I grew up in the 60s, but we had a lot better food than my friends. I feel like we didn't have hamburger, hamburger helper or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was always really curious about what my friends were eating. We didn't have roasts. We had six kids, kids in the family, and so my mom was um, just frugal about it. But she cooked from different countries via sunset. And that really, um, and we had a lot of cookbooks in the home from a lot of different countries. You know, she was, um, and she ended up being a professor at Dartmouth a few years later. So she, she was really a, um, she was fairly cerebral, but also she loved food, and she had grown up on a farm, so she totally didn't cook that kind of food. But so I was, you know, California. My, my food, what I have deep in my roots is, is California approach to food from the '60s, '70s, and then I left in the '80s. And in the '80s, I was working in, in restaurants and eating out, but. Um, so um, that that's my roots in food, and, and I came back to to the Bay Area because I had been in Southern California for a year when my mother was in graduate school, and that the food down there. I mean, we were shopping at Vons, and I cooked for the family that year. Um, but I was cooking from again. I think that it's not as much the um, when we grow up the way we do. The, we 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 kind of people who have no or like Irishy Scotch kudos background, you know, these mutts people with no um, close roots to the mother country, whatever it is. Um, uh, in some ways, um, like I cooked from, I definitely cooked from cookbooks and magazines. I, was a, I started reading Gourmet in high school. And, um, and, and so when I made menus for my family for that year, I cooked for them. It was, I just, I always cook something new mm-hmm. because I would just go and see what looks good and, and cook that. I wasn't thinking. I had no idea about the seasons. That's another thing. In those days, nobody knew anything about seasons. So then, um, and then I went to Belgium for a year as an exchange student. And that, um, 
had the impact of seeing what my mother was, the, the host mother was a very good cook, um, but really um, ho- home cooking, very good, very good cook. And Belgium, they uh, like we had steak tartare with frites, uh, French fries and mayonnaise and salad was one of my favorite meals. And they were also loved to do um, a meat fondue. Um, and I mean, I don't know, all sorts of things, but they were, it's really home cooking. And I guess that was, and that was definitely different from what my mother cooked because she was always doing casseroles or something sunset-like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I mean, still, that's kind of my food. Either the, and I, when I was a young, when I was, well, not so young, but I was in my 30s when I was first married, I um, still cooked across, and I cooked with cookbooks, um, Paul Wolfert was a big um, effect, and Patricia Wells, and Elizabeth David, and I just would get, or and of course Diana Kennedy from Mexican Food, and Matter Jaffrey, and so I just would find a, an author that had gone to the country and really had um, delved, gotten right deep into there, um, and written about it, like the women's food, probably I guess, of the countries. And um, I rarely cooked from chef books, so I did cook from Wolfgang Puck for because um, he was a friend of a friend, and so I sort of there's, it's always there's, if there's something I know about the person, it really makes the food become more alive, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, for Japanese cooking, was a funny kind of route. Of course, when I went there, I was thinking, um, you know, I'm going to start cooking Japanese food, and I wanted to learn Japanese, and it was all sort of the same ilk. Cause I didn't have much money when I first arrived, because you have to... Um, you get your apartments and they have nothing in them, like nothing, not even a refrigerator. <laughs> and so you have to sort of scrape that together. But um, and then, um, but I managed to, ha- once I started getting a salary, I managed to go to sushi once or twice a month because that was in the budget. But um, the food, at first I was watching TV and just doing some random egg and vegetable stir fries, which we never, never did again until this new book. Hmm. Um, because it was, it was not farm food. It was not something that my husband ever did, you know. Um, but it was on TV, and and I would buy. I bought some rice, and I bought vegetables every day, and I had some eggs, and they were probably horrible eggs, you know. And um, and I tried to make something Japanesey every night, and, and I bought one uh, one tofu every day from the, to- the local tofu shop um, because it was so. I mean. Good tofu is just so amazing, um, and not anything like um, some of the long-term tofus that are, are, are sold here. Um, but I have been using hodo soy since I've been in America. Um, I haven't used the New York one. I, I hear there's one there, and I use something in Chicago. But anyway, so and I eventually went to Tokyo because where where I was living there was no English books, and Amazon was a thing of the future. Um, uh, this is in '88, and uh, I bought a shojin yori book, which was um, temple food, and then also a, a home cooking book that the Suji people had put out. And the Suji people are the people that were behind the Jap- Japanese cooking of simple art. They did not write the book. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my friends and somebody else at Kodansha wrote the book, and of course um, MSK Fisher was involved. But um, people that wrote it were different than the. And so anyway, I um, it was actually not so appeal the the home cooking by the Suji people. I did was not actually so appealing to me. 
seemed like flat in some way, and I maybe should not say this, and I get some back <laughs> backlash about this, but the, the the Zen cooking books called The Art of Zen Cuisine. I think it's also in other. They've retitled it a few times from Kodansha International. Zen the temp, Zen Temple, blah blah blah. I don't know Temple Food, but anyway, the the Art of Zen Cuisine, and it's. Um, so-called written by an abbess, but in fact it was written by my friend Kim Shefton. He's an editor. He's in his early 80s now. He lives near me. It was written by him, and he spent a, um, a day every week for a year at the, at the abbess um, writing the notes for uh, writing this book. And you know, years later, like I, I met him, and we became very close friends, but this book really captured me. It was just so... The, the words that he had written, channeling her, what she, she wrote was so beautiful about concentrating on the, on, the, on the washing of the rice. And, you know, when I was the first in Japan, I tried to do the Zazen thing, and nobody even knows what Zazen is in Japan, it seems like, you know. And I, and I, I mean, they know, but, but it's not part of people's lives, really, you know. I mean, that's a super blanket statement, but anyway. Um, and I just felt like it was so fake for me to be sitting there, you know, doing Zazen. I was just like, oh, this is ridiculous, you know, just stop this but the the feeling of it like the washing of the rice i wanted to be that person who was not like having grown up in this wild crazy family with six kids screaming and yelling all day long and arguing and i wanted to be that quiet zen like person mm-hmm. and so the um and i wanted to concentrate on the rice and god i i bet that took probably 20 years before i really you know and that was through the process of cooking and just i like to cook alone a lot of times, just it's because it's so quieting and 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 just gives yourself a time to just you know just forget about everything and just think about you know the vegetables you're touching or that you know that just and let them just sort of find their way into however and whether it's Western cooking or Japanese cooking it's sort of the same. So anyway, um, the long and short of it um, is that I didn't um, really find any books. That was that Zen cuisine book was the only one that really spoke to me. And I didn't find any Japanese cookbooks that did. And so I, 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 um, I would have dinner parties, and I started with it. I did the Zen cuisine and a few other things, and I really was just so... This was when I was first there. I was starting to accumulate a few friends, slash students, friends, students in the school I was working at. And then the next time I tried the, the Suji book with a home cooking, and it was Mizutaki, which... You know, actually, I never ate again until I wrote this book, and uh, it's a, a chicken nabe and kind of restaurant food, really. And then um, I got lots of kibitzing from my friends, my girlfriend, one girlfriend who was kind of bossy, and then um, I, she got my husband involved, and then I was like, you know what, I should not be cooking Japanese food <laughs> two months into my stay in Japan for my Japanese friends. This is really kind of a piece of insanity. So um, when my friends came over, I cooked Western food. I continued to sort of do that quasi stir fry thing. For my, I actually have no clue what I was eating as a, in that period. But um, and then when we got married, my husband is a good cook, and he had the Japanese part down. And he had been cooking in his family for his mom and dad for seven years since he had gotten back from university. He was staying, living at home, working with his father, and so. I let that all happen because pretty soon we started having kids and, like, you know, uh, division of labor in a house is, whoa, 
you know, it's a, it's a thing. <laughs> so I cooked all the other foods, and then I started, I took, a, except for, like, salads, because um, Japanese salads are not really a thing. Um, and I made up a, a dressing that was similar to the idea of the, we, I would, the girls in our, I always made the salad dressing um, in our family, um, my sister or I, and then, um, and so, and we never measured, and we never used bottles, so I just, Devised one with sesame oil and soy sauce and, and, and Japanese vinegar, um, rice vinegar, to sort of match the idea. And, um, and uh, that's still I've sort of perfected a measuring out thing because you need it for recipes. So that um, remains a, a dressing that, um, that pops up in the books, um, not in this one. Um, and then um, I took over the tempura because I did not like a bunch of soggy tempura, which is the country style. You know, um, and then the, the the country vegetable soup and all those things. I just and then I just started. Um, David Leibovitz famously said, "If you live on a Japanese farm, we were at a at a blogger thing and uh, blog camp, and if you live on a Japanese farm, and uh, then your niche is you should write a book about talking about niche. You should write a book about the hundred most easy Japanese um, country recipes." And so it was like, okay, I can't find it anymore. Japanese cookbook coming up <laughs> yeah um, you you brought up anyway. something really interesting with the um the the zen of washing rice and how you really wanted to kind of adopt that practice but you also felt like it was just silly to just kind of co-opt you know just to start doing it and really mm-hmm. champion that and so I think that's really important to know um I don't think many chefs um kind of practice that same sensitivity and so do you think it's just a matter of time like you you mentioned it was like it's finally been 20 years and you feel like you yeah. can do that now yeah, because, you know, first people, you know, people can say to you, blah, 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 you know, and or listen to the vegetables, but you can try, but it just, like, listening to the vegetables is something that I talk about, and, you know, sometimes on TV or, or like, on the, um, on, in Japanese farm food, it, it, it really is, and a lot of chefs are going to the field, you know, and they're learning how to... You touch them when they're when they're alive, whether they're you know greens or vegetables or herbs or blah blah, whatever. You touch them and and they give you some energy and it and it yeah, it does take time and some people are faster than others. Um, for you know for me it was a process. I had no idea about seasons and it's just you know the first time my husband to be brought me a bunch of God knows what I think it was probably a hawksai, the uh, napa cabbage. It was like what the hell am I going to do with all of this? It's filling up my whole refrigerator. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, when you have a lot of something, we eat a lot of something. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, but I don't want to have it all of something. And it, it, that was a process too. But um, yeah, you, it's, you can't just all of a sudden change and say, I, I try to give advice, like try to just change one thing. You know, and, and in, in your audience, it's you know, way closer to being there, but I'm talking about people like, you know, some, I have a little preschool and mothers in the school, they don't even, like, Japanese have this trustingness about them, which is absolutely amazing, but sometimes infuriating, but would not even leave, read the labels to see it's got MSG and preservatives in it and all sorts of crap, and so, even with little children, but, you know, like, one teen thing to change is, you know, not even cost as much as um, better olive oils is like soy sauce, it's you know, maybe the top shelf is three times as much as the as the the one that's made from uh, defatted soybean grits, but it's like ten times as good. Mm-hmm. You know, and 
So, yeah, it's three times as much, but it's ten times as good. Mm-hmm. So, and you lose so little, you know, it's, and, and it's, so just changing one thing causes you to change the next and next because your soy sauce tastes so good, then your vegetables are not so, have no taste, and then maybe you want a vegetable that tastes as good as the soy sauce. I'm just talking about a really simple preparation, and then maybe you want to have actually real katsubushi, the the, the smoked uh, dried fermented fish that you got. The packaged ones are all only smoked and never dried and fermented. So you, you know, you, then you want to get one that you're actually going to hand shave. It's just, it's just like it's a it's a process, and and with chefs who are madly using Japanese ingredients, um, my huge recommendation is it. I understand that perhaps you can't, or home cooks that can't afford to sustain, keep buying the top shelf um, items, because yes, they are more expensive, especially the oils or the vinegars of Japanese um, that you've never actually seen. And I'm going to tell you, the Japanese pantry guys are the only ones bringing in the best oil in Japan, which is Wadamon, life-changing oil, sesame oil. You could throw away that crap you have in your kitchen. And the vinegar, like from Io Jozo compared to Madokan and Musicon, I mean, that should not belong in... Madokan and Musicon shouldn't belong in anybody's kitchen. It's <laughs> made from ethyl alcohol and maybe Amazaka, I think. I mean, barely even any rice. But the, the life-changing ones are available, but they're on a very small basis. And, and um, if you learn from those really amazing ones, then, okay, my restaurant can't afford to buy this. Okay, then you scale down, right? Mm-hmm. But don't learn from the from the crap or the mid, mid-range because you won't learn. And then you, then I've tried to, sometimes when I come with the soy sauce people or the, um, the sesame guy, we've, I took them around to a few places in Brooklyn. There were some places that we liked and some places we didn't feel like, and of course no names are involved, that were using the products or, you know, whether it's seven spice, which people are wrongly calling, it's shichimi tongarashi, everybody's calling tongarashi, which just means chile. Um, so it's either seven spice or one spice, each me or each me, but um, people should get that right, please. But um, using it poorly or using it not understanding it, um, and that just comes from, I think, not just using a not a good one, you know. Mm-hmm. And just and that actually, yes, it's extremely bothersome. It's, it's, it's back to what you, you talk about a lot, I think, not that I know so well, but about cultural insensitivity. It's insensitive. It's insensitive just to blanketly use Japanese ingredients without understanding the heart. Mm-hmm. You know, I go, I go to Japan, grab a few ingredients, and then throw them in here and there and whatever everywhere, and shiso's every and everything. You know, we don't use a lot of shiso actually. You know, but I, I know it's a easy thing to. And, and some of the Australian chefs are doing that too. Just like you can read a menu if, got, if it has shiso more than once, then there's a problem. <laughs> no, seriously. You know, just overusing, but um, mm-hmm. understanding the heart of somebody else's ingredients, and then, then you can like, uh, you can put miso, for instance, in um, if you're making a gratin with cream, like with potato and Gruyere and onions, miso goes really well as a back flavoring for the cream. Mm-hmm. You know, but until you really know what, and until you have good miso, I wouldn't be wildly just without any, um, you know, just it doesn't make, without any logic to it or any sensitivity, just like flopping it in here and there and just, you know, Mm -hmm. anyway. 
Yeah, so let's take a Not short sure break. Fine. Yeah, no, you're good. Um, we're just going to take a short break and we'll get back to using um, ingredient sensitively. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Surchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Okay, and we're back. Um, so we were just talking about uh, picking the... Or, being willing to pay maybe three times the amount for a top quality soy sauce and really learning from um, these real, much more higher quality ingredients and how that gives you more so the context or gets you at the heart of what Japanese cooking is about. And But I feel like there's also the other side to this, Nancy, where it's like there's kind of this I conception... I, I totally missed that first part. Oh, sure. So that, There was all this music there. Yeah, we were, we were just recapping about how you were talking about how, um, like sometimes it's worth paying a little more for soy sauce, um, a soy sauce that might be 10 times better than um, bottom shelf yeah. soy sauce, right? And so, but there's the kind of the darker side to that or the, the this misconception that then Japanese food is kind of hard to break into, right? There's this weird fetishization of it's just like a craft that is hard to, you know, you have to be, you have to study under a master for a long time. And so where, where do you stand on that? Yeah, well, you know, look at, there's restaurant food and then there's home food, mm-hmm. okay? And um, there are restaurants that, and, and Japanese restaurant food is very specialized in Japan. And I, I have noticed that in uh, U.S. or in, 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 in Australia, the only place in, in, in France or places like that, that they've got the gamut from ramen to sushi to tempura to every single kind of Japanese food you could imagine all in one restaurant, which is kind of mind-bogglingly mm-hmm. crazy. Right. But, um, <laughs> you know, so it's not, can't, can't be good. I should, uh, but anyway, um, there's going to be the ramen shop. There is the sushi shop, sushi-ya. There is the tempura restaurant. And um, there is the, um, the yakiniku, the Korean barbecue shop. There's, you know, there, it's more specialized. And there's also little eateries that are going to have the, you know, katsudon and things like that, but the fried cutlets, I mean, I don't really eat that kind of food outside. Um, 
I eat ramen or over the soba shops. For me, soba, soba shops, we say shop, you know, at the, uh, for restaurants or shop shops. Soba shops, we have we happen to have a local soba shop that's one town over one way and one town over the other way. Um, soba rods of a row and, and, and the chef, Kanji Nakatani, he's going to be in my next book, but he just, we just did a dinner together at Chez Panisse and he, that's his fourth one and he's in, He's leaving today, but he was at, at uh, Izakaya Green Taro in San Francisco for three days. And um, his, uh, soba restaurants, soba shops have soba, but if it's a really good one, like like Kanchan's, the Kanji Nakatani's place, um, he's going to have, he's going to make the most incredible, he makes the most incredible um, sashimi plate. Yeah, and so he's really good at fish. And then he mm-hmm. also has different cook dishes, and he has... Um, um, and, and so you, you can have upscale Japanese food, and I, I often don't order soba, and I often just order a little uh, zensai plate, which is little bites, and then a, a seafood salad that he makes for me. It's like only he makes me a different one every time, and it's not necessarily on the it's not really on the menu, but um, it has a combination of a few like delayed delayed vegetables and some raw fish and some katsuobushi and some fruit. It's like it's really Cool, great, delicious salad. But anyway, um, the I don't ever attempt to do that at home necessarily. Though I will write a book with the chef's food. Um, it, it, I'm writing it right now. But um, food artisans of Japan. But um, and that should not. It's. I, I feel like it's wrong to just have some guy or some girl come over and say, "Oh, I, I, I studied ramen for six months, and so now I'm going to open a ramen shop." Mm-hmm. And I feel like disrespectful yeah I do you know I guess that's fine but you know but I I, I have a problem with it um, or um, you know somebody who's not Japanese and just because they look Asian they can have a sushi shop and they never and they can you know roll together some rice and fish and, and, and call it a day um, you know I, I don't know the percentage but a lot of the Japanese restaurants abroad are run by non-Japanese Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't want to say the country names, but I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> I don't know how far <laughs> it's far to say, but um, and well, I'm not not Japanese, but I live in I mean I live in Japan. And I, my my role is to write about Japanese food and give you the real deal and not gloss it up. Like every Japanese no is not eating sweet and salty and and vinegary. And whatever all those those prescribed proscribed tastes are that on the table, no, they're not. They're not everyday eating white, black, yellow, green on the table. No, they're just trying to get food on the table. And so, I like to give a a real picture of Japan as as I know it. And gosh, it's just as I know it. You know, it's not the end all, the end alls. And this is the food that I know. And this is the food, and the preserving book was the food that the preserving and and pickling and and makers that I know. And then this group of food is a moment in time of a couple people that I, I know, and then I was able to write the recipes for their food, and then I filled it out with other food that was other recipes that were floating around that were quite dated, and I I made them more authentic. Because um, it came from an era, so um, 
Japanese food is highly approachable, but don't think you're going to open up a tempura restaurant just because you can make a batch of tempura. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, the, the line there, you know. And don't, you know, you can make tempura at home, and there's things to do it so that you can, and making it on a small scale is, is you know, you shouldn't, you know, just make a little bit because otherwise you're going to just be at the stove for a while, <laughs> you know. But, um, yeah. Yeah, your your books are incredibly popular here, and a lot of readers, whether they're foodies or not, turn to you for knowledge on all things Japanese. I think Jonathan Gold actually wrote, um, Nancy is the one who knows the most about Japanese things of all people. And so... That was so sweet, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> do you... Yeah. And so do you think it's important to your work that you don't live in America and just write as kind of an outsider, as an outsider yeah. of American cuisine yeah. and as an outsider yeah. of Japanese cuisine? Yeah, I mean, and I'm... Something that's also important to me is I'm very well respected in Japan, mm-hmm. and so I, I appear on TV to talk about this kind of stuff, and and um, um, and I definitely have a brand. Like I'm very, 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 very honest, and I'm also incredibly enthusiastic about these artisanal makers, and I will go to the grave like shouting. I mean, their praises because. What they do, I'm going to just, like, start crying. And what they do is so amazing. And there's there's a real handful of the best of the best of the best. And I am so happy to be connected with them and friends with them and, and having visited them. And some of them have become quite close. Like the, the Wada, uh, Wadaman, Wadasam, it's like my new best friend. <laughs> and this, the soy sauce and miso, Yamaki Jozo, is in my town. And, and the, we've traveled a lot together, the, the daughter of the Soyuz Company, Mami, Tani, and very close with that family. And, and what I, what they, these small handful, and then there's next level too, um, the best of the best of the best are people who are making the most amazing product. And they're, you know, yes, of course, they need to make a profit there because otherwise, they will fall apart. But that, the money is not their raison d'etre. I mean, that's not how they, how or why they do it. They want to make this amazing soy sauce or, or vinegar or mirin, it's hard to say it in English, mirin or, um, you know, mikawa mirin, mirin, and, and iojozo vinegar and yamaki jozo soy sauce, miso and wadaman, um, um, and moroi jozo fish sauce. You know, they're just, they are not only making an amazingly great product with really, really good materials. You know, Japanese. Well, there's no Japanese sesame to speak of, so he he has to source outside, but he has contract farmers. But anyway, they're not only making an amazingly top quality product with these with with, with these these great ingredients, but they're also their um, the packaging is so beautiful and. They, as people, are so beautiful, and everything they touch is so delicious that it's that that hundred percentness of it, and and how they operate the companies is so with such conscience that you know those are the people that I support mm-hmm. because and um, you know I have other um, next level down that that um, I also support and and um, with with a heart but. The people that I'll just like never stop talking about are those people I just mentioned, and I've probably forgotten somebody, but, you know, 
and and uh, and that's um, I forgot the question. <laughs> That's okay. I think we're... Oh, I'm going to go back to something that you were talking about. Um, You talk about... So for your next book, you're looking at Japanese food artisans, and I feel like that is kind of a common um, understanding or conception of, uh, quote-unquote, the Japanese, right? Like, if the Japanese try something or they work on something, they're going to perfect it. For example, like Japanese scotch most recently. And so what? where did this kind of practice originate and why... I feel like there's still somewhat of a problematic uh, stigma there. Yeah, well, um, the country itself, there is such a a strong work ethic. And so, um, and um, it's a a country has a long history of, um, well, it's been agrarian for a long time, but the artisans, like the basket makers and the ceramic makers and the, the box makers and all those types of artisans, um, they um, have such, and, and even the fish sauce makers, you know, all the artisanal food and the artisanal, um, uh, well, no, the things makers, they just respect the materials and they res- and they respect doing a job well, and 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 um, that's something that's so deeply, deeply, deeply rooted in Japan. Japanese culture and still actually is there today, um, even though, you know, young people, some are kind of drone-like because, you know, they've gone through the school system and, you know, just like doing it perfunctory, but they still do a good job, I feel, by and large. I mean, I have heard that it's much harder to get, get uh, what do you call those, apprentices, and they cry and, you know, they don't have the backbone, they don't have the... And that's true, you know, but um, there's also... You know, there's the thing of after the war, World War Two, is the big companies came, and so and there's some very large-scale food production happening in Japan. Well, for a small country, you know, and so um, the big companies making these big brands that you get in a, in a, in America or or, or overseas other overseas countries. I did visit one, the biggest miso company, uh, recently, and it. Um, it's personally, and I personally, I, I found it kind of horrifying in that they do a really good job for a, you know, a safe product that is in within the realm of it's, you know, basically you could say it's well made for what it is, but the cacophony of the of the process, like it's so, so loud and so fast and so. It just, I kept feeling like, oh, my God, it's putting all this, like, loud, almost angry energy into the mm-hmm. miso. I just, it really freaks me out. Mm-hmm. But whereas at Yamaki, my local place, the miso's sleeping in the, <laughs> sleeping happily in the, in the wooden, those huge wooden barrels. And I was like, it's such a different thing. And I really, I mean, I, I don't, I didn't say anything particular, but I, it just, you know, the difference, and that's what I write about, about, you know, it's, these are processes that are really quiet and gentle processes until they become industrialized. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, there's those industrial ones, you know, sure, they're well made for what they are, for the, the ingredients, yeah, they're, they're I'm not going to use them, but, you know, they're safe and they're, you know, the, they're well made, but for what they are is the caveat. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's, I mean, 
the 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 lowest level all of the supermarket in America. I, you know, we probably grew up in uh, my family using that brand and didn't know any better. But then when you know my mother brother in law is making this beautiful olive oil in California, which I use in events called Frontoyo Grove, and it's like you know it's like a whole different thing. I think that's a no brainer. You know, and and like sesame is like coffee. You know, the roaster is the important person in the process. As well as the farmer, sure. But if you don't have, a, if you just have like a whatever roastery who's you know, like burning the seeds and and then putting it out in the rock gut sesame oil, then I don't know what's the point of using it. Is my mm-hmm. feeling. Yeah. And so, do you think the sensitivity to the whole process, um, like you were even talking about, noticing that the machines are putting out angry energy into the air, like, do you think this is something that's unique to Japanese culture, or is it just kind of symptomatic of like good artisanry? Oh, I, you know, I think it is is good artisanry. I mean, of, of course, you know, at the soy sauce, at the sesame company, because they use a lot of machines, it is a little bit a bit loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm probably being. Um, uh, what is the word uh, uh, um, uh, when you're pre-biased and I prejudice <laughs> against the big the big music company? That's probably mean, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll stop that. But um, the um, a lot of these, I think it's more that the, a lot of these artisanal processes and sesame, of course, was made much more quietly in the past, you know. But um, it takes a lot to get oil out of a seed, out of seeds or about out of rape rape blossoms or whatever they are that they take it out of. But um, uh, a lot takes a, gets out only a little, but um, a lot of these artisanal processes, and that's something I also mentioned. Why I wrote the historical chapter, and the, and and I wrote in the intro that you know these processes have been around for like the way to make miso. Now I think it's been around for a thousand years from Muromachi, and the miso soup method is from Muromachi, which is you know I don't have all this memorized, but it's it's about a thousand years old. And so this, that, that, that history, it's kind of, I mean, for, for as a born-in-America person, without any close ties to a, a home country, I just find that so, I mean, it just kind of drops you to your knees to think that this simple process, and it's still so delicious, and, why, and it's so simple, so why the hell are these guys making me so... In, and I'm going to get backlash for this probably in summer when it's supposed to be made in winter. And why are they using all these frigging weird ingredients to make this weird stuff? That you know, maybe it's delicious and it's like not called miso, but these experimental weird misos are do bother me. And um, haven't really, I've only tasted a couple and not found them or weird soy sauce. I've not found them to be. Um, any redeeming quality. Mm-hmm. And so do you um, think just a matter of the language around that is enough in making that quote-unquote okay for you? Or like, how would, if, you know, someone were to come out with like um, a pistachio nut miso, how would, you I, know, how would you I like mean, to enjoy that? I, I'm not even interested. Mm-hmm. Could not even be. There we do have a guy, there is a, a place called, uh, there's an island called Amamiyoshima. It's the, the, um, the island... Uh, just, just uh, southernmost island before um, uh, Okinawa, and um, they make they made uh, a thing called nutty miso. It's a cycad. Not really. A, it's, I mean, it looks kind of like a chestnut, but it's not. And they make a powder from it. Hmm. And I was going to 
um, I might put it in the next book, um, uh, and I would use chestnuts and, and, and chestnut powder. It's not the same taste, um, but um, in that case, they would they made they in this old guy who moved away and is coming back. He has this little project, and he's making miso, making nutty miso, and it's um, and it's basically it's it's a miso with when he's making the um, the, the rice koji, he's got the um, He's putting the koji on rice plus these naughty cycads, mm-hmm. um, and um, and and so it's not a weird. That I, I can go that far, but I don't know, I'm I'm fairly a traditionalist, and so and hey, I'm I'm not 30 year old, you know. Um, I, I I do believe there's something to be said for the traditionalists mm-hmm. in, in, in pickling and preserving, and so. Um, that's just my personal, only my personal thing. No, okay. definitely, especially you know, in. Um, be against it, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, in in New York or in Brooklyn, all like on every single menu, it's like oh, quick miso or um, you know shiso jelly, you know, like just these kind of casual oh, drops well, of. Yeah. Yeah, unless it's I mean, like in on the island, they're gonna put they do make a pork miso. Mm-hmm. Um, they salt the pork and then they put it in the miso, and there are things. It's not, I mean, that's just, that's not something that's not off the radar of what, you know, pistachio nut miso or, you know, I'm not, was not a big fan of the green pea miso that I tasted, you know, but, because mm-hmm. um, it was not miso-like and it wasn't tasty. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sure, if, you know. If yeah, I, I think, like, the, um, the kind of lazy uh, reasoning for it is that, Japanese cuisine is often about technique, and so if you um, use Japanese techniques, but maybe with different ingredients, you're still approaching it with that same kind I of. I understand that, yeah. yeah. But but in fact, like it's totally losing the heart of the whole thing. Like mm-hmm. you would never make a jar of miso. I'm just telling you. And I see photos online of you know like these little experimental potions, and mm-hmm. a jar is just just laughable. Mm-hmm. You need to make, a, a, you know, several kilos. But when you're experimenting, you're not going to make several kilos. So it's just a, the whole approach for me seems just a little bit off kilter. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get in trouble from a, a few people that I already know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, I think it's totally valid. But just, so then what would you prescribe? How would, if I were to experiment with just one jar of miso, there's no way? Well, if you want to do it, it's up to you. I mean, I think it's... <laughs> There's just, I don't know. For me, there's such things so beautiful in the fact that you steam up some soybeans and you, you know, I don't even make my koji. I, and actually, I didn't make miso the last two years. I was so busy with that five in book with 400 recipes, mm-hmm. you know. But um, if you steam up a bunch of soybeans and then you add in rice koji, and then, in fact, I think you should, if you can get a good rice koji or barley koji, you know, that's something that, that it, it makes or breaks whatever you're making, mm-hmm. and so that's an experiment in and of itself, you know. But um, so you, you can uh, get good rice uh, barley koji from Mitoku, I know, and, and I'm sure there's a few other places for the the rice koji. But then you add it to the steamed soybeans with some, you know, good salt. I, I try to use good salt, and, and 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 then the fact that it just will turn into this delicious miso with not much effort, just that, and then there's a little bit more involved, but not much, and it just happily turns that way by itself. Mm -hmm. This, to me, is like a magic miracle, 
and that. But that's my feeling. I, you know, what you do at your house, I'm not going to go into your kitchen. <laughs> but get rid of the monocon musicon and that horrible sesame oil, please. Because mm-hmm. those have no redeeming factors, you know, for Japanese food, for sure. Mm-hmm. I've been but. speaking with author Nancy Hachizu. Look out for her forthcoming book from Hardy Grant, Food Artisans of Japan. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nancy. Thank you, girl. Okay. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.